Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Monday, July 13th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. This is uh, this is a cool show because Adam Agoyan is live on the show, a legendary Canadian uh, uh, filmmaker. And he, was, he, he owned a bar a few years ago called Camera, about a decade ago, and a decade, more than a decade ago. And he talks about how he was... The, the, perhaps the thing that stuck with him the most after uh, owning a bar was his relationship with the health inspector and why the health inspector is sort of the focus around his new film. I didn't think I'd ever be talking this long to uh, you know a, a big time filmmaker about you know the health inspector of a restaurant, but the stuff he has to say about it will never make you. You'll never think about a health inspector. You'll never think about a restaurant the same way again, I don't think, especially after seeing the film. After that, speaking of never seeing things the same way again, Echo Nimako is an, is an artist, world-renowned artist who works in Lego. And the stuff he said to say about Lego, maybe there's a bit of a theme emerging here, but the stuff he had to say about Lego, I'll never look at Lego the same way again, unless I'm stepping on it. After that, Rupi Kaur talks about uh, writing workshops she's doing. Um, you know, it's rare for a poet of her caliber to be teaching and uh, she talks about why it's meaningful to her and why it helps her. And then finally, Rufus Wainwright. The uh, the first CD I ever bought with my own money was Rufus Wainwright's CD. Uh, and now all these years later, he has what I think is his best album. And I'll talk to you a little bit about it. show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Monday. Adam Agoyan is the kind of director that critics will call an auteur, you know. He's known for dramatic films like Exotica and The Sweet Hereafter. And this month, he has a new film out. I was wondering if you'd had a chance to speak to your lawyer. About what? Early release. But I don't want an early release, Dad. No one decides to stay in jail. I have. Why? Because it's what I deserve after what I did. Guest of Honor is about a complicated father-daughter relationship. And Adam initially got the idea for it years ago during a different era of his life when he owned a sort of bar in downtown Toronto. And I'm happy to say Adam Agoyan is on the line now live from Toronto to tell you a little bit more about it. Hi, and, and welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for asking. So you, you, owned, you owned a bar? Yeah, I co-owned a bar with uh, Hussein Amarshi, uh, who's a film distributor and a friend. Uh, it was called Camera uh, on Queen Street. Uh, we had a little cinema. We had a bar. We were serving food. And because we were serving food, we had to deal with food inspectors and inspectors generally coming in. Um, and it was just really fascinating to see the relationships that were developing with these people because, of course, they would just ask questions, not only about the bar, about your life. And I've had this situation before uh, with customs officers or insurance adjusters, uh, tax auditors, and they've all kind of figured their way into my movies. But this was particularly interesting because at the same time, um, our, our son was working as a busboy in this very exclusive French restaurant. And he was coming back with stories of how the chef manager there was dealing with the food inspector and making his life absolutely hellish. And 
I just thought that, yeah, this is an interesting job that, you know, someone who goes uh, from one restaurant to another, uh, trying to keep codes, trying to regulate things, trying to make sure that everyone is kind of observing certain laws and obviously carrying their own agenda. I mean, I think we all have that situation where we're dealing with someone in a position of power and we're wondering, well, what are you bringing from your own life into this conversation we're having right now? Why are you behaving this way with me? So it just it just began to develop from that. Like, And a lot of possibilities came up. We have a clip to take a listen to this. Sure. Employees working in food preparation need to wear a cap or a hairnet, you see. I'm a food inspector. Now, all right, this is a private meal. You're not in trouble, Lisa. The idea is to stop people from finding hair in their food. It's not hygienic, is it? I, Adam, there's a word that you use there that's mistaken out to me in thinking about the film, which I saw last year during the the, the Toronto Film Festival, um, is the idea of power. Uh, yeah. the, the, the health inspectors have an awful lot of power in sort of the sort of you know, UN inspector general kind of person who can come into your bar. What do you remember about the health inspectors that came into your camera bar? Uh, just the fact that there, there were a whole a bunch of things that were really uh, important to them in terms of food preparation, in terms of temperatures, in terms of like uh, all all uh, rodent sort of situations, conditions, and and there was this higher. There was a level they could give you a conditional pass, or they could uh, give you uh, they could close the restaurant in the most extreme situation, but that there would always be a note on that certificate as to what they found. And that would kind of color anyone's impression of going into that place. I mean, no one wants to go and eat in a place where they found rodent droppings or where there is something that's irregular. So the whole notion of reputation became really interesting. And so here I began to think of this character, Jim Davis, played by the brilliant actor um, David Thewlis, this person who's consumed with his idea of reputation. Um, He actually had a restaurant in his former life. We gather he was quite a, a successful restaurateur, uh, but something in his life has changed and uh, he's in a really different phase. His daughter is in prison for um, uh, for a crime that he doesn't understand if she even committed. So he's trying to kind of work things out as he's going through these inspections. And so he's using the inspections as a place to meditate on his life, but also to try and gain control over something that he has no control over in his own sort of day to day. Right. I mean, uh, there's this, the, 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 in his, in his own life, there's a bunch of questions. There's a bunch of, bunch of things that aren't resolved, a bunch of things that don't make sense. It feels like health yeah. inspector is the perfect role because there's a right and a wrong answer. Is this sauce up to the right Temperature, yes, okay, well, the, the restaurant can stay open. Is this, uh, you know, pork being uh, stored at the right temperature? Yes, okay, well, the restaurant can stay open. It's it's binary in some ways, you know? Yeah, and in this particular case, it becomes quite absurd, right? Because uh, you know, the one connection he has to his daughter who was in jail is this pet rabbit that he's looking after that they've had forever. Uh, and he stumbles into a restaurant that is actually massacring rabbits. <laughs> like, there's a there's a pile of dead rabbits. He, he walks into at one point, and suddenly the inspection takes on another sort of level. Like it's, it's as though there's some some weird intersection between his worst nightmare of his own life and these inspections that he's taking on. And so that there's this convergence. And that's where the film takes on this crazy tone, you know, which is kind of absurd. I mean, it's real, 
but it's not. And uh, and he begins to behave. You begin to realize he's somewhat deranged, right? That there's something else going on in his mind. He's not entirely healthy himself. I don't think he would pass uh, an inspection if you were to look at his the state of his mental health. <laughs> well, it, it, it brought, I mean, I don't know if I would either, but it, it, it brought to me this idea of likability because there are times where, you know, he's the protagonist of the film in so many ways. So I found myself sort of naturally rooting for him and he's had a hard go and he loves animals so i find myself rooting for him and then there were times where i really couldn't stand him you know in times that yeah, he really, yeah no of course i mean like, i think that both both the characters are very complex i mean i think uh his daughter veronica is also uh you're not sure exactly i mean she she has had a number of things in her life which are really difficult to immediately identify so i am playing with this question of like okay these are the, these are the protagonists these are the people who are driving the story but uh, are, they're not traditionally people that you would immediately uh, identify with because they are in this particular orbit. And uh, maybe the, our entry is this, uh, you know, the Veronica, the daughter, we actually gather at the beginning of the film that the father has passed away. He's organizing, she's organizing his, his funeral and meeting a priest. And the priest is played by Luke Wilson. And in some ways, he's the easiest person to identify because we understand his role. And he's just trying to find out as much as he can about the, the father for a eulogy because the father's never been to this church. Like, why, why did the father insist on having his funeral at this particular church? Well, we gradually begin to understand there's another story there as well. But, you know, it, it's, that's the way, I, the way these films are layered, like the exotic, as you mentioned. And, you know, they're, they're, they're really trying to access these different points in these people's lives. And they're, they're not traditionally told. But, you know, I'm hoping to kind of draw the viewer in through the performances, the music, uh, the, the way the editing works. It's, it's a different type of uh, experience for the viewer, for sure. I want to play a clip, uh, not from from the film, but sort of about the film, and I, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. So I got to speak with Luke Wilson uh, last year during the Toronto Film Festival about this film. As you mentioned, he plays Father Greg. Take a listen to this. That's always been kind of woven into my DNA as an actor, as I've always kind of felt like very aware of schedule and kind of being in a hurry. And uh, that was one great thing about Adam was he kind of slowed me down. And, um, you know, we would have you know, a set and it would be lit and we'd be ready to shoot. And, you know, he would sit down and start kind of having a very calm conversation with me. And I'd be kind of looking around thinking, um, you know, <laughs> but thinking like, yeah, we should probably get shooting. And then, um, you know, I had to kind of make that adjustment to really listen and kind of be thoughtful. And yeah, it was definitely um, a new way to work for me. That's the actor Luke Wilson talking about the new film Guest of Honor and what it was like working with my guest, the director, Adam McGoyan. What, what do you make of that now? Uh, I, I think it's very interesting that Luke is talking about this space because really, if you don't create these um, lines of communication and the level of comfort for an actor to feel that this is a, a real opportunity for them to explore something, then you don't really have um, a film in a way for me. And it's interesting because yesterday I was, we're doing an interview with Luke and, and uh, the interviewer was mentioning this particular line that he says in, in the film where he's talking about the father. He says, you know, the food inspector, your dad, it's someone you wouldn't think about normally. And uh, that, the interviewer said, that was a great line. Well, that's the line that Luke came up with because I, I gave that space. I said, okay, so here's the scripted dialogue. If there's other ideas that come in, like just, just let it go because you know we uh, with this particular part of the film, we can have a degree of improvisation and see what happens. And so that emerged. And that wouldn't emerge if we were really pressed and 
hurried. So I think, you know, that, that space that Luke is talking about, it's, it's, of course, it's a luxury. And when you're dealing with a film that's shot as quickly as this one had to be, it's, it's a you know, low budget film. But you, you have to, as a director, know which scenes you're going to allow that space because they're so important for the spine of the movie. And that, in the interview with Luke and uh, Veronica, uh, the daughter, that, you know, that, that weaves through the film in a really, really particular way so it is sculpting right it's you're you're thinking dramatically what are the scenes that you want to really um, mold and give yourself the time to mold those scenes so that they're going to really uh, you know take on a very important part of of the movie the actor has to feel comfortable yeah here's here's uh, back back to the kind of the word we were talking about at the beginning is the idea of power again so you know you have the health inspector who has a tremendous amount of power over the over the restaurant, you have the the father who you know ideally would have some sort of sense of power over over the over the family, the parent over the family. Then you have the daughter Veronica, who is a teacher and gets, who's in a position of power with her students, who finds herself in and I don't want to give too much away here, but finds herself in some um, alleged you know trouble with with one of the students. Um, and that kind of goes to a lot of your films: the idea of power, who gets it, how that often can relate to gender. What what keeps you coming back to the idea of power? Well, I think it's just something I've observed growing up. You know, I think when you are uh, new to the country, uh, you become really aware of like what are the rules and the laws and the ways you're expected to perform, and uh, uh, that becomes a part of your your makeup. You're you're just aware of having to follow certain rules. And also, you know, what's interesting about this movie is that the the food inspector really focuses on ethnic restaurants, and he himself is an expat. He's had a restaurant. He's come to the country, and he keeps going into these different restaurants, be they uh, uh, you know, like, you know, all different, dif- different types of cultures. Uh, we shot in Hamilton where there's a large Arabic community, Syrian community. So we focus a lot on, on Middle Eastern sort of restaurants, but he keeps saying to these people, I know what it's like to be from somewhere else. I know how tough it is, you know, and he doesn't really, I mean, I, he's, he has a position of privilege. He's, he's, you know, he's coming with a certain brand, uh, because he's, he has an English accent, but he, there's this weird sense of the fact that there's a, I guess a colonial approach, right? Where he thinks he understands other people's experience, but they're terrified of him. I mean, they they want to satisfy his needs, right? So there's this odd imbalance, and he he luxuriates in that. And it goes back to what you were saying before, I guess. You know, is, does that make him likable? Well, no, not in a traditional way, but it certainly makes him fascinating. And you know, at this particular moment where a lot of our restaurant culture is closed, and you know, we miss that. You know, it's a huge part of what makes this country so amazing are all these different food cultures that have been brought into the fabric the idea of someone regulating that and bringing in an agenda and that having uh, and having issues of power i think is really relevant and 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 it really talks about how we how we think of ourselves as a society i think and so yes it's it's a father daughter relationship but i think it has other meanings well yeah and 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 the idea of of sexual power you know when i look at the, the oh, teacher sure. the teacher who gets herself in in trouble you know with with a, with a student um, and again, I'm using my words very, very carefully here because well, the, the film is. We, we, yeah, you can use words carefully, but we could also say that she's also taking a moment in our culture and she's actually using it to for her own. You know, she has issues of things that she in her past that she thinks have not been reckoned with. So she takes this moment in our culture and basically convicts herself, you know, with, with you know, she 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 does cross lines in the film in terms of her, you know, the, the, the students are on a band trip. She does cross certain lines. We see that, but then she exaggerates that and basically convicts herself. She says that she's guilty of something, which in a way she, we, again, I don't want to give too much away. She is guilty of crossing that line, not in the way she says she has, 
but she puts herself in jail. I mean, the one thing in the film, I will say that I, when I look at it now, it looks like she's in jail for a very long time. It's, it's, that's not the case. She might just be there for, for a month or so. Mm-hmm. But if she was to do what she says she has done, which is abuse her position of authority, if she was to go to it in front of a judge and say, say that she wants the, the, you know, the, the severest maximum sentence... In, in, in our country, she would go to prison. I mean, like that, that's something that you would avoid a trial. They would, they would make sure that you're mentally sound, but you could actually do that to yourself, <laughs> as strange as it might seem. Um, and I think that makes her a very unusual character. And again, is she likable? Well, I, no one can identify with that, but I think we can ad- understand, hopefully, as you watch the film, what has led to that? The main thing is that the father is bewildered by her actions. Right. The father has no way of understanding. But, but it, it made me think, Adam, about how the conversations around power and gender have changed in the film world. You know, on a on a film set. You know, since you're in in your time as a as a director. I mean, that that must have crossed your mind as well. Well, it crossed my mind because three of the actresses I've worked with in the past have all sort of come up and said that there have been, you know, uh, uh, not on my sets, uh, but by any means, uh, but, but, you know, they have encountered, uh, you know, th- these uh, horrible abuses of power. And uh, so, yes, it was very much, it has been very much on my mind. And I, d- and I do think, weirdly enough, I mean, it wasn't my, one of my best films, but I did make a movie called Where the Truth Lies, which is about very, very powerful men in the entertainment business, in bathrobes, in hotel rooms taking advantage of, you know, young women who, uh, and, and I think that that film, in a way I look at it now, I go, well, yeah, that's, that's very much dealing with this, with this moment where, uh, yes, you know, you can pass it off and say what's always been there in the industry, but it, you know, it's, it's ugly and awful. And just because something has always been there, doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be changed. You know, like, it, you know, there are a lot of really violent, horrible things that thankfully get shifted because society is at a place where it can actually confront those issues. What, what, what goes through but, your mind when it's when it's three? Again, this is not on your set, but when 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 these are three actors that you you knew personally and you worked with. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to read those letters. It's heartbreaking to to know that they had to endure those 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 circumstances. Um, I, 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 in the case of one of them, you know, I know that the time that they've had on their set was had was held as a model for how they wanted to be treated. Uh, but it's heartbreaking to think that uh, that they they went through what they did. So, um, but it's great that we're talking about it, and it's great that it's changing. It's it's fantastic that, as I say, that 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 that, that I heard that early on in the whole uh, kind of Me Too conversation. Well, this is the way it's always been, and and that is exactly as you know, that's exactly why it should change. That's you know, if something is institutionalized uh, and it can be confronted and dismantled. That's empowering, and that's great. That's a great I, moment to celebrate. I have to tell you, I, after after I saw the film, I was in New York, and I, I I walked past a restaurant, and I saw the big, you know, the B on the front of the window, you know, that said that, oh, you know, this one hasn't quite uh, passed muster, and I thought to myself, I wonder who that was. So if, if if nothing else, I mean, I did really love the film actually, but I if nothing else, it made me think about the person behind that that B on the window. You know, listen, I mean, it's the first thing if you look look, look next time when restaurants are open again, and we go back. Um, it, it's a big part of your experience, even if it's subliminal. You know, you, you pass this this piece of paper that's on the wall, and it will tell you what the status of that kitchen and what what the status of the of the restaurant is. And there's some heartbreaking stories there because, uh, as I say, like restaurants have been closed, and um, and and lives are are broken, right? So, I mean, this actually there was a you talk about New York. There was a story in the New York Times I read uh, about a, a again a French restaurant, a, a person whose restaurant was closed, and he fell into depression, and he didn't want to open the restaurant again, and you know his life fell apart. So it's it's 
it, it, it is kind of a big thing. If uh, and, and I hope I, I hope you know it's funny. I was reading one of the reviews which which, which called uh, gave the film a conditional pass, and I thought, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's a term that a food inspector would use actually uses in the movie itself. Uh, Adam, it's been such a joy to talk to you, and and I uh, hope to see you soon. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. That was the Canadian filmmaker Adam O'Goyan. You can stream his latest film, Guest of Honor, including uh, now it's including on the digital platform for the Toronto International Film Festival. We will post a link to how you can do just that at cbc.ca slash q. That's more stories here for you. The U.S. National Gallery of Art is making history. For the first time in 80 years, the gallery has acquired its first painting by a Native American artist. It's an 11-foot-tall mixed-media piece by Jean Quick-to-See Smith called I See Red Target. The piece was created with parts of sculpture, collage newspaper clippings, historic photographs, and Jean's own painterly touches. Joan, who's a member of the Kootenai Nation in Montana, created the monumental work as part of a series commenting on the 500th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival to the Americas. The museum administrator coordinator Shana Bushyhead Condal said, quote, Native people must decide to take up space, to use our voices in the most powerful way we can think of. And when we do, we represent more than 500 tribes. It's a ridiculous responsibility. This painting is a loud and powerful voice at a national museum when you walk in the gallery you cannot ignore it. In other news, take a listen to this. Jerry, there is a sensitivity thing that some people have. I don't have it. I don't cry at movies. I don't gush over babies. I don't start celebrating Christmas five months early. And I don't tell a man who just screwed up both our lives. Oh, poor baby. That's me, for better or worse. But I do love you. That is the actor Kelly Preston in the movie Jerry Maguire. It was announced yesterday that Kelly Preston has died at the age of 57 from breast cancer. Kelly was a dramatic and comic foil actor playing alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Twins and, of course, with Tom Cruise, as you just heard there in Jerry Maguire. Kelly went on to have a lengthy career in TV and music videos. Kelly's husband, actor John Travolta, announced the news on Sunday, saying, quote, It is with a very heavy heart that I inform you that my beautiful wife Kelly has lost her two-year battle with breast cancer. She fought a courageous fight with the love and support of so many. And finally, one of the most well-known and influential families in Bollywood is facing multiple positive cases of COVID-19. Three generations of the Butchin family have tested positive for the novel disease. That includes the legendary actor Amitabh Butchin, who's 77 years old, his son Abhishek Butchin, and his daughter-in-law Aishwarya Butchin. The virus has also reached their eight-year-old daughter, Hospital officials say that so far the family is in stable condition. India's film industry recently resumed film shoots after months of hiatus following a nationwide lockdown in late March. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and, of course, lots of laughs. 
New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast with, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. Um, just Welcome back to the show. Just for a moment, I want you to picture yourself at seven years old. You got that? Seven years old. Okay. So what did you spend your days doing? Um, I have a, a pretty strong suspicion that at some point in your seventh year, you lost some time of your life absorbed in tiny little Lego universes that you build. Also that you caused your parents about 75 brutal foot injuries per day in the process. Echo Nimako is an artist based in Toronto, and he's never really stopped playing with Lego. He makes these incredible sculptures that have been displayed at the Aga Khan Museum and Nuit Blanche in Toronto. And the idea is to imagine new monuments for black youth. Echo keeps a lucky charm in his studio to keep him inspired. It's a small passport photo of himself at seven years old that he looks at while he's making his art. Why? Well, Echo Nimako joined me from Toronto. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Tom? I'm doing very well. This photo, I want to know more about it. Uh, were you one of these kids I was describing that played play with Lego when he was seven? Oh, absolutely. From, you know, three or four years old, right until 13. That was, that was my, my world, you know, that and drawing. But yeah, Lego was, was super important to, to my childhood. Can you, can you pinpoint why it might have been maybe more meaningful to you than other kids your age? Um, you know, I'm, I, I, it's hard to say sometimes. I think that you, you gravitate towards it um, because of some kind of inner compulsion. It becomes an outlet. In fact, speaking of compulsion, I, I also kind of believe that there is some kind of obsessive compulsive thing happening uh, for those of us that really are attracted to uh, the material, to Lego and using it and like the kind of clicking motions and how tactile it is. There's something and the order of it as well, because especially as you get older, the organization of your parts becomes really important so that you can access things and you're not spending hours just, you know, sifting through a pile of parts, but you have everything really organized. So there's something to that, the order of like playing Lego. And then on the other side of it, you have the order in terms of organization, but then when you're actually using the material, you have absolute freedom and almost like a lack of order. You just can do whatever you want. Do you think that the fact that you work in the Lego medium might, might cause some people to have some biases towards your work, to not see them as serious or not to see them as art? That, that can exist, I think, when you hear about my work. Because Lego is so iconic, there is something in the collective consciousness that comes to mind when the word Lego comes up, you know, because we've all seen it. We, we all have some kind of point of reference for the word Lego and something comes up in the mind. And then for those of us that have seen large scale type Lego creations, then maybe those kind of things come into the mind. But I think once people engage my work or they see it, that quells a lot of the possible dissent around it not being fine art or something along those lines. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the reverse side, do you think that the fact that, you know, that you're working with, um, uh, again, a medium that as kids is sort of the building blocks of our creativity and you make this very magnificent and this very powerful art out of it, do you think that, that viewers look at your art in, 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 almost in a, in a different way, in more of a positive way because they can kind of recognize themselves in the work? Um, definitely. I think um, because I, 
I've used other colors from time to time in my in my artistic like palette, but mm-hmm. for the most part, it's my building black work that um, is kind of leading the charge. And within that work, I'm often exploring um, black culture um, and uh, black figurative sculptures and even creatures. So there is something that I think particularly resonates with um, black and racialized people for sure. But at the same time, uh, the artwork can is regarded by everyone and you know, the art is for everyone to enjoy and, and to be inspired by and hopefully affect some kind of change too. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, most Lego sets also come with these sort of mini figurines that I definitely had mm-hmm. as a kid. You know, I had the Stormtrooper right. or I had the, I had the Pirate or, you know, I had mm-hmm. the Chef and stuff like that. And they were uh, yellow characters that you can mm-hmm. dress up. What, what did you think of them as a kid? Uh, well, when I was a child, it, I, it, it didn't really occur to me what I was doing. It was just like, you know, playing with Lego. But when you reflect upon those experiences and that kind of playtime when you're older, and for me, especially as I'm, I'm a culture uh, geek and like sci-fi and, and comics and, and films. And so I was really into that. But I always did notice, even when I was young, that I wasn't seeing myself particularly represented in the things I was playing with, whether it was like G.I. Joe or even Thundercats or something like that, these cartoons and things that I was watching while I was building and playing and the minifigures being yellow, that the fact that the yellow character, whether in Lego universe or even in the Simpsons is code for white. And I don't think that's talked about. It's just like viewed as, you know, it's yellow. So it's, it's neutral or something like that, but that's not the case because all the cultural cues and, are, are there to tell us that it's not actually yellow, it's it's code for white. And I mean, it becomes evident too when you start bringing racialized characters into that 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 realm. For instance, with Lego there, I think they were yellow up until a particular Star Wars set when Leia and Luke and Han Solo were yellow. But when they brought in Lando, Clarissian character, he was brown. They used like a, a brown minifig. And I think that was the first time it was done. And then the same thing can be seen with the Simpsons where you have them as yellow characters, but then some of the black characters like Homer's friend, Carl and that judge and whoever else, they're clearly black. So despite the fact that they're presenting as yellow, it's very clearly that they're actually white. And even in, I remember an episode of the Simpsons when Homer actually said he was white. And that to me was kind of pivotal because it was the first time I heard them actually acknowledge it. It's like, okay, so we know now that yellow is actually white. So it's not a neutral thing, you know? Yeah, I, I, if you're just tuning in, I mean, I, I have so much to say about that. But my, if you're just tuning in, my name is Tom Power. I'm speaking to Echo Namako, who's turned a toy that might be kicking around your closet into a medium for really like, very powerful works of art. I wonder, I know this is a challenge as we're on the radio, but could you tell me or describe a piece that you're you're proud of and what it looks like? Absolutely. Um, well, one of, I think when asked about my favorite piece or to describe something, I often uh, go back to a piece called Flower Girl. Uh, this piece, it kind of came about without intending to as like the assemblage of one of my daughters, uh, my younger daughter, Jusaria, when, when she was a child. And um, I didn't mean for that to happen because the piece actually was an exploration of ceremonial flower girls. And at that time I got to thinking about enslaved peoples and the fact that they didn't have the agency to have a wedding that would include a ceremonial flower girl that's, mm dressed in like a white dress and looking innocent and pure and, and um, as a beautiful child. So I wanted to create and preserve uh, a black child in that kind of aesthetic. Um, 
by 2019, when I remade the sculpture, I had been making changes to her over that time. So the sculpture actually evolved and grew over that period of time from like the size of maybe a six-year-old girl to the size of a, a nine-year-old girl with, and her hair grew. So she had small locks as her hair and they were maybe just above her ear in height. And now the locks go all the way down her back. So there was something, that's the first piece that I've really evolved like that over such a long period of time. Um, and of course, because it was a, it kind of connected to me to my children in a way that was also kind of really important about the sculpture. So I want to go back to what you said when Lando from Star Wars was, was put into um, uh, Lego said he was, he was black. And mm-hmm. you know, up until that point, the Lego characters had all been yellow, which was, which was white, you know, um, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it, it, Lego was still going, Lego was still making, uh, Lego was still a company, Lego was still making new sets. And they, they temporarily stopped marketing its police sets in response to the protests around Black Lives Matter. How, how significant is that to you? I think it's very significant. Um, you know, I'm an abolitionist when it, as far as the police are concerned. I think defunding and, and changing that whole system is, is superiorly important. Um, so to see corporations like the Lego Group take a stand. And I mean, I don't think, I think it's, it, there's been a wake up call definitely that's galvanized people that were previously silent about um, violence against black people um, and oppression against black people and, and um, racialized people in general, indigenous people. And, uh, however, I don't think it's something that's too far from Lego's radar at the same time. Cause I remember when Greenpeace did a campaign, an amazing campaign to, um, uh, against Lego for their partnership with Shell Oil Company um, because fossil fuels are part of the process in terms of making the uh, ABS plastic that Lego uses. And um, they, the campaign was successful. They used the, the Lego song from the movie Everything is Awesome and made an acoustic version and was uh, a lot more um, less exciting and more introspective. And they used a huge Lego set that they designed to show what is happening in, when oil spills in the Arctic and that Shell Oil Company had a role in that. And Lego um, publicly severed ties with the Shell Oil Company and all of the promotion in terms of like the sets that were featuring indie cars and gas trucks and all of that ended. So it's not so far from Lego's radar being like really conscious Um they also have like a huge R&D initiative to actually remove fossil fuels from their plastics over the next 20 years or something. It's a huge endeavor. One of your exhibitions will use over 100,000 black Lego pieces. Is, is, are you in touch with Lego? Does Lego know what you're doing? Are they, are they happy with you? Like, are they proud of that your, their, 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 their um, creation has been turned into this great art? Recently, yes. Um, up until this year, actually, I hadn't had really any contact with them. But um, they, I, this year, there were some things that were in the works, um, and the COVID, COVID came in and kind of slowed that down. But um, I've still been in conversation with them, and I think there's some some great things that are that are going to be happening down the line. And they, you know, they've gone as far as to post a piece I did for my exhibit that showed at the Aga Khan Museum called "Building Black Civilizations" and it explored. Uh, fanta- fantasy, but also drew inspiration from medieval Africa, medieval West Africa in particular. So this city that I built was named Kumisale after a cosmopolitan city in the medieval kingdom of Ghana. Um, and that piece uh, 
got a lot of attention and Lego went as far as to post it on their official Instagram account and it kind of blew up my followers and it's, it's been really great. So Lego has really stepped up and, and um, I'm looking towards the future and it looks bright. Well, I hope so because you got to be their best customer. <laughs> one of them, you know, <laughs> one of them definitely. There's a lot of people doing a lot of amazing things with with Lego. Not like what I do, mind you, <laughs> but there's definitely people that are that are using parts in like vast quantities. Like there's things out there. Oh, this was made out of a million Lego parts. Like there's there's they're pumping the brick the parts out, and people are using them. Make no mistake. Do you, Do you ever step on one yourself? Rarely. Because of that organization thing, <laughs> my Lego is really, really organized. So there might be a piece hiding in the far corners of my studio, but my floor is often pristine. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. It's been lovely to talk to you, and thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Ekoni Mako is a visual artist. He makes futuristic sculptures entirely out of Lego. And I know what you're thinking. How do I, how do I see these things? Well, if you go to cbc.ca slash Q or our Twitter at cbcradioq. We'll post up a link right there. Earlier in the show, I said, uh, um, picture yourself at seven years old. I'm going to give you another task here. I feel like I'm asking a lot of you as someone who just wants to listen to a radio show today. But here's another one. If you were going to write the story of your life up until now, what would the title be? The reason I ask that is because that's one of the prompts Rupi Kaur is using in her writing workshops on Instagram Live. Rupi Kaur is a Canadian author. Maybe you've picked up one of her best-selling poetry collections like The Sun and Her Flowers or The Super Successful Milk and Honey. The magazine The New Republic named her Writer of the Decade last year. She's the only poet, poet I know who gets like swarmed and swamped at the, uh, at the mall. You know, people, if she's eaten in the food court, she just gets completely taken over by fans of her poetry. And during the pandemic, Ruby Core wanted to help other writers out there find and harness their voices. So she's been running these online poetry workshops and poetry slams. She's also been working on a new book of her own. And as you're about to hear, the workshops and the book writing, well, they kind of feed off each other. Earlier this week, I had a conversation with someone that said, hey, you remember the bread baking Zoom chat part of the pandemic? Doesn't that feel like years ago? Well, that's when I spoke with Rupi Kaur back in April. Hi, Rupi. Hi, Tom. How are you? Not bad. I want to read uh, a quote you put online of my favorite writer, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, you wrote, um, I write because I don't know what I think until I read what I say. Why is that quote so significant to you? I think that's that quote is the reason that I wrote Milk and Honey. I was 18, 19, 20 at the time when I was writing that book and processing so many emotions and so many experiences. And one thing that I struggled with growing up was I didn't have the words to describe the things that I was feeling. And it wasn't until years later that I wrote them down that I was able to look back and say that is exactly what that was. And so that quote has just been a sort of mantra that I use when I write every single book, um, because I think especially sometimes I don't know what to write about. Sometimes I let the outer world dictate what I should write about. And that quote always brings me back and has been an anchor in my life to always write what is here and what's honest. 
It's funny, you know, I've started writing a little bit uh, just because, you know, I will go for these long walks and I'll come home and I'll feel something like I'll feel very emotional or I'll feel very scared or I'll feel very peaceful. And I don't really know what I'm feeling. And as I as I write things down, it starts to become clear to me. And I, I've never really experienced that before, where because I was under the impression that writing would be something that I knew I was feeling, that I was trying to figure out the words to say. But it's it's, it's the opposite. It's that I don't actually know what I'm feeling until I write it. It's kind of spooky. It is spooky, for sure. And that's why, like, for me, writing is, and poetry is such a form of catharsis. And I always say that in my writing, in writing poetry, I'm actually figuring out the answers to questions I didn't know that I had until I wrote them down. Are you able to write while you're home? Yes. I mean, I think like for everybody, the first couple of weeks, I wasn't able to do anything, which was really hard because I was beating myself up for it. I mean, there was so much uncertainty. I didn't know where I was going to be. I was in the middle of trips and coming back home and there was a collective grief that I think we were all feeling and our year was suddenly up in the air. And so for the first like three weeks, I wasn't able to write a single word and it was devastating because I have a manuscript due very soon. And that's (laughs) why I started doing the workshops because I was lonely and I was desperate and I was scared and lost and I don't know, the idea came to me. And I think I always go back to connection and sharing. That's why I started to publish. That's why I share my work is I'm desperate to connect with other people because I think that's what keeps us alive and keeps us going. And so now I think for a lot of us who haven't been directly affected by like losing a loved one, this routine, this thing indoors has become normal. So now I am getting writing done, thank God. It's it's interesting to me that that you've been doing these workshops where you know people can tune in and they can uh, ideally write two to three poems a session. It's interesting to me that that would help you write. Yeah, I think what it is is it helps me write because it helps me feel like I'm a part of a larger community, which I know I am intellectually. But sometimes when you're sitting at home as a writer alone for hours, day in and day out. It just feels like you're by yourself and you're the only one dealing with the things that you're dealing with. And I feel like that is such a dangerous place to be because then it becomes so much of the self, the I, I, I. But when I do the workshops, I realize this whole thing, this whole journey, this whole thing called life is so much bigger than me and I'm not at the center of it. And when I feel that pressure and that burden sort of like release, then it's easier for me to do the work. And I also, when I see people join my lives and read their work and they're so talented and they just have so much amazing things to share, it reminds me why I do this and why I need to keep doing it. So on these Instagram live poetry workshops, what do you do? What kind of activities do you do to get people writing? So in my own writing, I... Every morning I wake up and my poetry writing starts off with just free writing because what I'm trying to do is just excavate what's happening in my subconscious and my inner world. And so all of the activities and all of the exercises are designed to let readers just free write. I'm not really interested right now in teaching people technique and skill right now. The ones, the sessions I've been doing have just been here. Let your subconscious 
do the work for you. Our thoughts are already processing. And so don't worry about editing. Don't worry about revising. Just let it come out of you. And so all the exercises have been designed to free write. And they're about, sometimes they're eight minutes long. Sometimes they're 15 minutes long. And we tackle different subjects. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's love. Sometimes I leave it up to the writers who are involved to pick their themes and their subjects. But all of them are sort of designed to just do exactly what you said. Like when you go on those long walks and you come back and you start writing and you're like, oh my goodness, where did all this come from? That's what the exercises are designed to do. Like I'm interested in pulling out of people what's happening on the inside that they might not be aware of. If people are writing poetry or even just little verses at home during this time, what do you do with that voice that tells you, oh, this isn't actually very good. This is kind of dumb. This is kind of, you know, emo <laughs> or stupid. I'm trying to, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, and that's what I tell people, like, because they'll come to me, like, after a show or after a reading, they'll be like, oh, my goodness. How do I share my work? Like, all my work just sucks so much, and I wish I could write like you. And I'm like, does it help that I feel the exact same way about my writing all the time? Like, I think that's no a natural really? feeling. Yes, all the time. Like, if you ask the people who I send my work to to edit my work, like, I am the most complaining, like, down on myself, hard on myself person. Like, I think everything I write is so emo. And so, you know, all of the <laughs> things that everybody else says about their work. And I think you just have to be okay with the fact that it's... I think it's easy for me to share because the point of I'm not interested in perfection. I'm just like my number one goal has been to share and connect. And then that makes it easier to share something that you might be a little bit insecure about. Um, and you're, you don't really get better until you put yourself out there and it's that, that journey. So just take that leap and take that risk. What can people get from that? You know, what can people get from writing poetry right now at a time when they're scared or they're spooked out or they've been with their families too long. Like what is, what is the release of writing poetry? I think writing poetry or just any form of writing at all, because a lot of the people who join my workshops aren't poets and, you know, some of them are writing for the first time. And so I think it's a form of therapy. I think it's a form of meditation and it's a form of just sitting with yourself and, that is that process is like nurturing and it's such a nutritious process and so you always come out of it feeling better and feeling more connected to yourself which i think is really important at this time when there is so much uncertainty clouding our days you said you're working on a manuscript i know you have a new uh work coming out and i also know that as i mentioned at the beginning you know, you've been named you know writer of the decade and you have all this sort of pressure on you yeah. Is, is, it, it, well, yeah, it is, it, am I right about that? Is there some pressure on you there? <laughs> you know, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like nothing compared to like, I take all of that pressure and then I magnify it by a hundred million and then put that on myself. And that's why it's been three years since I've had a book out because that pressure can become, you know, debilitating. Is writing something that happens to you or is it more like you sit down, okay, okay, I got to get some poems done. Let me just do this. Or are you just sitting around your house waiting for something to hit you? For a long time, writing, so writing was initially something that was, like I said, a form of catharsis. It was such a, 
inner meditative spiritual experience. And then when Milk and Honey took off and it became so much bigger than me, it felt like writing became work. And then it turned into, oh, I got to get up and I got to write these poems because I got to get a book out because people are waiting. And that was not a good place to be because then I'm not enjoying the thing anymore. And then the poems weren't coming because I'm not enjoying them. And so now in this like period of stillness, I've been taking a step back, learning how to take the pressure off and writing to enjoy and writing to just be where I am. And so every day I wake up in the morning, I meditate and I'm like, okay, what is it? What do I need today? And that is what I'm going to write. And it's a journey every single day. I have to wake up and make the decision to write what I need today. And so it's been, it's a process. And I mean, yesterday was a great day. And then Sunday wasn't. And today, who knows how it's going to go. And it's just, I guess, learning how to be okay with that. Um, You're going to do a reading right now. Can you tell me what it is and tell me what you needed? Like, tell me where you were when you wrote it. So this poem I'm going to read is from the sun and her flowers and it's called community. And I think during the process of writing this book, it was very difficult for me to reach out to people that I loved and tell them that I was hurting. And after Milk and Honey, I sort of closed myself off and I was feeling very isolated and feeling feeling very lonely. So writing this poem was a way to teach myself to reach out again and realize that it's actually okay to reach out because if people are present in my life to take care of me when everything is great, they will be more than happy to take care of me when things aren't going so well. And I wanted to read it because There are so many communities around the world, different countries, different groups of people who are being affected by this in different ways. And so I want to send this out to everybody who has lost a loved one or is on the front lines working. Community. When the world comes crashing at your feet, it's okay to let others help you pick up the pieces. If we're present to take part in your happiness, when your circumstances are great, we are more than capable of sharing your pain. Beautiful. Rupi Kaur, thank you so much for doing this today and talking to me. And I think the, I think the thing I took away from the most of this, and I hope you take this in the right way, is that it's hard for you too. <laughs> that's, very, that's very gratifying. <laughs> it's hard for all of us, <laughs> but it makes me feel better to know that we're not suffering it alone. We're all in it together. And we're going to get through it together. Ruby, thank you so much. Take care. Thanks. Bye. From April, my conversation with Rupi Kaur. She's the author of Milk and Honey and the Sun and Her Flowers. If you want to check out her writing workshops, head on over to her Instagram at Rupi Kaur. Your pockets to bleed on St. Valentine's And you sat in a chair thinking Boy, I'm such a prince Well, life's a train That's Rufus Wainwright with April Fools from his debut self-titled album from 1998. Rufus Wainwright, legendary Canadian singer-songwriter, grew up in Montreal. Parents, uh, the legendary American songwriter Loudon Wainwright III, legendary Canadian songwriter Kate McGarrigal of Kate and Anna McGarrigal. And when there's that much 
music just coursing through your blood and your house and your life. It's not surprising that Rufus became the musician that he is today, a, a musician that Elton John himself has said is one of the greatest songwriters alive today. But eight years ago, Rufus decided he needed a break. And as you'll hear in a second, that break felt like a bit of a necessary risk. He spent some time writing operas. And now Rufus Wainwright is back with his ninth album called Unfollow the Rules. This is a strange thing to say to you, but I'm, I'm not used to seeing you without the robe. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's the same setup. I mean, I'm at my piano and in my living room, but yeah, no, I'm uh, I, I I'm usually with the robe every day. Actually, in the morning, I get up and and, and I do play for a couple hours in the morning. So it's uh, it's uh, it's verite, shall we say? But but now it's later in the day. So uh, this is a great this is a great record, and it's been eight years since you made your last pop record and you took a break to pursue opera after that and i heard you say that taking a break felt like a bit of a risk uh but a bit of a necessary one could you tell me about that yeah i mean i mean it's not often that that a fairly successful you know uh singer songwriter will just walk away for 10 years uh and and just and go into a whole other um avenue um I definitely felt the need that you know I felt the the need to explore these you know urges that I'd had all my life really uh, concerning opera and to really you know um, uh, test that out and so forth and uh, so I went with that but I in retrospect uh, it was a very good idea because if anything uh, it, it gave gave me a greater love and a greater appreciation for where I came from in terms of pop music. And, and a sense of perspective, and too. Uh, uh, so, so it's good to be back. Did you did did you have a same new arsenal of tools in your pop songwriting because of opera, or was it more like putting on an old robe? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was an old robe that had been washed. <laughs> uh, no, I mean it's you know it's it it I don't like. I hate the term crossover <laughs> and I, and I'm very adamant that, you know, what, if I'm doing opera, mm-hmm. I'm really, you know, that's what I'm doing. Or if I'm doing pop songwriting, that's what I'm doing. Um, but I don't, I do understand that in voyaging between both worlds that there will be, you know, some seepage, you know? And, uh, and so, so I, I think that happens naturally, but I don't like to push that envelope. But I, as I said before, I think it's, I think when any artist decides to, um, explore other avenues um he or she will always uh be you know come back with uh with with vestiges of 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 their of their voyage so so it's um i think it's a good thing to do for anyone uh, artistically to get away let's let's uh, take a listen to a little bit of this voyage this is uh the title track this is unfollow the Rufus Wainwright with Unfollow the Rules from his new album of the same name. I tell you what I'm not going to ask you is what that song is about because I, <laughs> I found myself so moved by it and oh. I, I, but I wasn't entirely sure why. Yeah. 
And yeah, well, I, I'm not either. That's I don't the thing. Know what it's about. I watched the video of you and talking about it, and you were like, "I'm not entirely. I'll never be able to tell you what it's about." Yeah, yeah. No, it's this strange amalgamation of, of many factors in my life. Both, you know, I mean, the, the term "unfollow the rules" came from my daughter, our daughter Viva, who uh, is uh, who just one day walked into the living room and exclaimed that she was officially unfollowing the rules, <laughs> and uh, and I, being you know. The good father just said, oh, there, there's a lyric in there. <laughs> and just promptly went off and started writing a song. But um, so so there's that. But then, you know, I think the other thing that occurred is that I, you know, I, I, I'm now, you know, 47 and or 46, I should say. I'll be 47 this month, but not yet. And, uh, you know, I've, I've done I've had to do, you know, therapy over the years and and, and really, you know, reevaluate my life a few times. And, and that, and that, so part of that is in there. And then also there's, um, there's a kind of um, yearning, I think. It, uh, one, one, one interesting, where I actually finished the song uh, was I was on an amazing trip in Northern BC in, uh, and we were in Haida Gwaii, which mm. is this great island up, up in, near Alaska. Anyways, but we, uh, and we had just gone to see these, uh, these really phenomenal um, uh, totem poles, mm-hmm. and 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 there was definitely something about that spiritual experience that uh, that kind of sealed the deal for this song. So it's yeah, it's a combination of things. And and as I said, it was it, it is it, the song in a certain way is kind of a totem pole. I mean, it's there are these different elements just sort of on top of each other, which um, relate and don't relate. Mm. <laughs> It's it's interesting, and you mentioned that your daughter Viva, you know, inspired the title uh, "Unfollow the Rules." She has um, her her writing is in the middle of the vinyl record, yeah. and it's interesting to hear it as a as a fan of yours. You know, when I listen back to that very first record of this, you know, sort of rakish man yeah. about town, gadabout in in Montreal and in New York City, yeah. and to hear you now uh, in your late forties with a family. You know, staying at home and, and, and gone through all these things. Yeah. I have to tell you, I don't hear I don't hear an unbelievable difference in your songwriting. <laughs> how how are you feeling? How do you think that family yeah. life has maybe changed your music? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I you know it's funny because but before COVID, um, the last big tour that I did was was uh, my twentieth anniversary tour. You know the the uh, the twentieth uh, uh, anniversary of, of the, that first record, Rufus Wainwright and Poses. So so. Um, so I had a chance to to revisit uh, a lot of that early material and sing it, and I was very I was very pleasantly surprised at how well the songs stood up. Um, uh, not all of them, but 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 a, but a good chunk of them, and and how in a in a sense um, I do feel strongly that 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 uh, regardless of what's occurred in my life, you know, addiction, children, you know, love, marriage, hate, all of that stuff. Um, and when it came down to writing music and um, and focusing on lyrics and you know making records, I always had a very high standard, and I was always incre- incredibly um, you know driven and, and 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 did not compromise in that department. And so so yeah, I don't think there's a tremendous difference now uh, between uh, between my material um, and then. I will say though that the the the, the element that that has changed quite drastically is my voice. I'm a much better singer now, uh, just in terms of breathing and pronunciation, pronunciation, and really trying to, you know, focus on the, um, you know, the different uh, 
on the depth of a song. You're defying that thing that as people get older, they're supposed to drop things down by semitones. I only say this, and, I, and, this, and, this, and it's not in, in a kind of egotistical way, meaning that the, the, the trajectory that I that I followed because of my great love of opera is really that of an opera singer in the sense that that in that world, it's, it's, it's truly in your 40s and 50s even where you're at your peak vocally. That's what you train your whole life to be able to sing uh, when you when you flower and and all the big roles are available to you you know at that point so so I think I just had that in mind uh, while I was working um, on my voice for years and and I you know it's uh it's it's paying off now um, I want to play another song from the record take a listen to this will you forever be the damsel in distress will you forever That is Rufus Wainwright from his new album, Unfollow the Rules, a song called Damsel in Distress, a song um, I was I saw inspired by Joni Mitchell, who I was told you weren't allowed to listen to growing up. Yeah. Is that right? That is true. Why yeah. not? I mean, she wasn't, well, uh, my mother, the, great, the late, great Kate McGarrigal, was, was a profound uh, and brilliant and... Uh, electrifying songwriter in her own right, you know, and, and I don't think he even got as, as much attention as she deserved uh, by the end of her, her life. Um, but that being said, she was, so, so she had, you know, credentials, uh, but, and she, but she was also very much part of a, a kind of uh, strict uh, movement uh, in, in the folk world that was heavily, um, uh, kind of dedicated to you know purity uh, and you know to the truth and to uh, you know the, the 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 source of where a lot of folk music came from. So so they were more like Pete Seeger uh, followers and or they would like listen to field recordings or or you know ancient you know harmonies and stuff. And you know Joni Mitchell had had broken out of that and uh, and so I think my mother did, you know she was just very weary of that um, leery I should say leery of that of that of that concept i think also my mother was quite jealous mm. <laughs> of her success and her fame and her you know her freedom and stuff so so i think it was a on one hand it was it was a philosophical difference which i which i respect but on the other hand it was it was also just human frailty and and you, you tell the story about how your husband you know becomes obsessed yeah. with Yes. With Joni Mitchell's music, and then you have to start investigating it for the first time. Yeah. Sort of yeah, the way yeah, that people no. listen to Black Sabbath, you know, like, you know, uh, in the nighttime, they're not supposed to listen to it, this, you know, evil music, and you're finally listening yeah, to Joni. Yeah, yeah, no, it was definitely, I had to, I had to, uh, I do not think I would have been able to do those Joni Mitchell songs and kind of really uh, gone in to the extent that I have um, and even, you know, become friends with her uh, if my mother had still been alive. It would have been, I would have felt like I was betraying her. How did you feel when um, you met her? How did you feel when you met Joni? Oh, I, you know, I, I think she's an amazing woman. Um, I, you know, her writing and, and her and her music is, 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 is phenomenal and I love singing it, especially. Um, but that being said, I, for, for me, her personality is really kind of the most fascinating facet of, of, of her being. I mean, she's just such a, I don't know, there's an aura that she emanates that, um, that really, um, 
I don't know. It's 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 astoundingly powerful, and 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 just to be in her presence is really a, a great honor. So, so I'm, I, yeah, I've heard that she's, I don't know. I hate this expression, but sort of down to earth. Like she'll yes. she she'll talk to you. She's not you know oh, floating yeah, above no. the clouds like Joni Mitchell. Yeah, I mean those. I mean, it's hard to, for me to gauge right now because, you know, I knew her both ways. I mean, I knew her before her her um, her aneurysm, yeah. you know, and, and, and then after. And and I don't in any way feel like, you know, putting a positive slant on what occurred because, you know, it, it's been very difficult for her and so forth. But that being said, you know, my, my grandmother had strokes mm-hmm. at a certain point and then went into a heavy-duty depression and really became, you know, very incapacitated and very angry and very unhappy. That didn't really happen to Joni. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it affected her. I mean, it certainly affected her move, her movement, which is tragic. But her personality softened. Right. She became very. She became a little more gentle and and very kind of I don't know a little less sort of anxious about you know the way the world was. So it was I don't know. I mean, I I found it her presence her presence very healing. And did, very did you tell her? Did you tell her you weren't allowed to listen to her? I think she found out about it. She heard about it at one point, uh, you know, which I don't think anybody likes to hear. You know, I, 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 in fact, I'm a little, you know, I, I, I tend to talk about my life and, and I, I don't have that many filters. And sometimes I wish I'd been more diplomatic, but, uh, but hey, I've never been able to master that art. <laughs> um, I, I only have a couple of questions for you. And one, I'm not entirely sure if you're going to be able to answer, but I kind of wanted to throw it at you anyway, is because um, you're, you're such a gifted melody writer from the very beginning. And I don't, I don't always know if you've gotten the acclaim that you deserve specifically for your melodies. I wonder if you could shine a light on a little bit about how you approach melody mm-hmm. writing. Is it just something yeah. you, is, is it, is it sort of generative, like Kerouac, you just sit down and open up your mouth and see what comes out or yeah. you're more deliberate yeah. about it? Well, I mean, I in pop music, I should it, say. it it come it, it's a constant flow <laughs> of, of of melodic inspiration, uh, and, and I'm always you know I will often be struck with with uh, little notes you know uh, shooting around, and um, and so and I and I know how to pick them up and 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 run with them. That being said, I'm also on on the other end, and I think this is very important. I am feeding the beast uh, a, a lot in terms of, you know, I listen to operas, I listen to Brazilian music, I listen to classic, you know, American songwriting. And um, and, and so I, I think that there is, and it's funny because it's a bit of a, I don't know what happens in between. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not a deliberate kind of uh, process, but but I think it's important to to, to intake as much as you kind of output. Um, you don't necessarily have to fashion them together, but but I think there's a there's a nonetheless a relationship there. Is there a uh, is there a melody in your career that you're most proud of? And if that's too challenging, yeah. is there a melody in your career that you're most you're particularly proud of? Well, I mean the the one that comes right off my head is poses. Uh, I don't know that that really had a had a, had a kind of a, that to this day has a life of its own, you know. And I, I just I, I just felt like at that moment when that was written, I was I was just like of a vessel 
um, translating some message from somewhere else. So, so poses is always uh, has served me well. Mm-hmm. I've always loved the art teacher. Can I tell you that? Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, the, the art teacher is uh, is, is also a good a, a good example of, of of getting lost in melody. I'm getting a note to stop nerding out with you about your songs. <laughs> um, you you said that "Unfollow the Rules" feels like a bookend to your debut self-titled album, the one that came yes. out um, all those years ago in 1998. What does that mean? What, is that, what does the next chapter look like then? Well, you know, I was brought up in Montreal and I did go to French school for a long time and, and I've developed uh, uh, quite a following in France um, and, uh, and other parts of the French world. So, so I, I, I'd love to make a French record at some point. Um, but I'm kind of set on it not being typical in the sense like I, I love of course I love classic French chanson I love Edith Piaf I love you know Barbara all of these great uh, or, or Serge Gainsbourg and I sing a lot of that material but I kind of like to do something completely divorced from that concept do something very French but very new and very uh, avant-garde and very I don't know something really a bit off the wall so so is this is this the last i mean i gotta ask then is this the last english pop record no good no no i doubt it i doubt it i'm just you know i like to like boomerang around so well i i I always try to hold it until the end of the interview with you but you know what a fan (laughs) i am and it's lovely to talk to you oh well thank you so much that was my conversation with rufus wainwright his new album unfollow the rules is out everywhere now here he is with a special recording of trouble in paradise
Rufus Wainwright and Trouble in Paradise. He recorded a special socially distanced performance of that song from his new album, Unfollow the Rules, which is the closest we can come to having people in the studio these days, I suppose. You can find that up on our YouTube channel now. We'll post the link on our Twitter at CBC Radio Q. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Nick Offerman, who played Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation, mustachioed, scotch-drinking, government-hating woodworker, and became a bit of an icon because of that. Uh, But he is so interested in getting away from that character that he literally has a song in his new stand-up special called... Uh, I am not Ron Swanson. So we're going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be so associated with a character and then try to move on from that character. In the words of Beauty and the Beast, tale as old as time. We'll see you tomorrow, later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.